0: Welcome to the Connectomics Podcast. Here we talk to theorists and practitioners about how notions of embodiment can help us to connect an understanding of ourselves with an understanding of the cultural, technological, and ecological worlds of which we are part. I'm your host, Mark Michael James. I'm a cognitive scientist and philosopher at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in beautiful Okinawa, Japan. Please join me to connect with our guest for today in just a moment. Hello there. Last time we talked, I was making some apologies at the outset that I was traveling and I was worried about the sound and I was using a little portable Shure microphone that attaches to my iPhone and I was concerned that it wasn't going to be so good. But my editor informed me that in fact it was good, if not even better than (laughs) what my normal setup is. So... This time I'm more confidently embracing this little microphone, and right now I was looking for a quiet spot to record this, and I find myself in an empty lecture hall in the bowels of the Oist building, which is kind of nice. This time on the podcast I have a philosopher, a philosopher of cognitive science, a philosopher of embodied cognitive science, really doctor. Mog Stapleton, I really enjoyed having Mog on. Uh, Mog is somebody who I've, I th- I believe, become fast friends with. She's just arrived to OIST as a visiting researcher, and uh, her work is, as we we'll, you'll hear in in the podcast, is is something I've known somewhat over the years, um, but I'm really enjoying getting to know her bit more deeply. We talk about some very interesting things. We talk about, let me see, we talk about holistic approaches within the sciences, how to kind of sync them or align them or from that standpoint relate to more reductive stances. You know, what is the boundary or what is the threshold of inclusion for any given finding uh What is the job of an action or a philosophy in with respect to all that that led us to thinking a little bit about philosophies of nature um versus scientific programs? We also talked a lot about aesthetics and style. We talked about the origins of or the kind of ferment of embodied cognitive science in Sussex. We talked about ritual and personal and collective transformation. We talked about a lot of things, and I think there's more to talk about. Here, this conversation should be a really good introduction to some of the ideas that she's grappling with, um, that we're grappling with as a unit, and that having her here allows us to help think through more deeply. So. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you a conversation I had three or four days ago, maybe on the twenty-first of June 2022, with Dr. Mug Stapleton.
1: So welcome, Mug. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thanks well, for having me. I
0: was gonna say welcome both to Okinawa and to the podcast. Um <clears throat> so yeah. Can you just tell us where you just came from just so we can kind of get a sense of how you've arrived here in Okinawa and
1: uh yes yeah, so I was in Edinburgh for the last two and a half years because um I was at uh, Ch- uh China and East China Normal University for 5 months but then the spring fe- I came back to Edinburgh to visit family for the spring festival and covid happened so I got trapped in Edinburgh for for two and a half years um and like you say, I've been trying to get to Okinawa since last, I was supposed to come last October, but okay. uh, Omicron happened, so they shut the borders, so I've only just been able to arrive last week.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, you say you, say you got trapped in Edinburgh, like it was an awful thing, but I assume there was some fun and, and...
1: Yeah, it did end up actually being really good. I got a lot of chance to um, learn a lot of Kung Fu and and do some non-academic uh, activities that, okay. that has been a lot of fun, but... Um, yeah, it was trapped for quite a while because the lockdowns in Scotland were already very strict for for a long time. So there there was definitely an element of of being being trapped. I think they were stricter there than they were actually in many Asian countries because right. um, yeah, yeah, because they couldn't they didn't really close the borders so much, and so they just made everyone stay at home for a long time. And Scotland was stricter than England as well, so it was very different there.
0: Right. Yeah, it was pretty bad in Ireland. I, I guess we had some time where we were overlapping that at that point so I would have been in Ireland I guess at some time when you were in Scotland probably suffering similar <laughs> woes yeah I think yeah so, it yeah. was kind of brutal towards the end right where you're just locked down after lockdown um <clears throat> but you're here I am <laughs> jazz hands so Muggs uh someone's whose work you are someone whose work I'm not super familiar with I have cited you on occasion I've certainly read some of your articles um But I guess we haven't overlapped so much that I've been super uh, paying attention to everything you do. Um, Me neither. (laughs) Um, I mean, (laughs) paying
1: attention to my own stuff, not not yours.
0: (laughs) Nor mine, I'm sure. um, But let's uh, maybe, you know, justify your your presence here in the podcast today (laughs) and uh, maybe get, some of your background and talk about, um, you know, your relationship to embodied cognitive science in general. So maybe something I tend to do normally is uh, ask my guests to maybe chart some of their introduction to ideas of embodiment um, and, you know, what initially inspired the kind of passion and fervor for these ideas that people who seem to absorb themselves in these ideas eventually have um, maybe you can tell us a bit of that chronology.
1: Um, yeah, sure. I think it probably started in undergrad. So about the time I was doing my junior honours dissertation, I had a friend who was studying cognitive science at Exeter. So I was at Glasgow. Um and they introduced me to this book by Antonio Damasio called Descartes Era, yes.
0: um,
1: which I read and was super excited by. And um yeah, I was really interested in in this idea that emotion could be much more important to cognition than than has traditionally been um understood in the cognitive sciences. So
0: just just to clarify that was the idea that was really at the heart of the book.
1: Um yeah, Descartes Era, yes, exactly. So so the uh the Descartes era was, you know, s- separating out the yeah. the uh the mind and body and Damasio and argues, no, no, the body is is actually really important for for cognition, um in virtue of yeah, um the emotional contributions to mm. um to cognition, so he's got some hypotheses that, like the somatic marker hypothesis, which I may not be completely on board with now, but nevertheless, the the book mm-hmm. goes much into much more detail about neurophysiological changes, which really sort of captured my attention. So I ended up, yeah, being really interested in that. Um, then I went to St Andrews to continue to study philosophy, and, and realised that I really wanted to get more into the cognitive science. I went to Edinburgh to do cognitive science, but it ended up being quite a computational course and it wasn't really up my street. So I decided to go back to philosophy. So I went to Sussex and started um, a part-time PhD there in Ron Crisley's Philosophy of AI and Cognitive Science group. Mm. And while I was there, I, um, I was lucky to be there at the same time as a lot of people who have been really... Um, sort of formative to the current state of an activism. So at the the time, Hannah de was finishing her PhD. Um, Ezekiel de Paolo was was a lecturer there. Um, So Tom Frese, he was also partway through his PhD. Mm. And um, yeah, a number of other people, Matthew Egbert, Marek McGann was finishing his just as I was starting. So so all these people um, with, there and I got introduced to quite inactive ideas so that was it was there that I learned about waterpoesis and um, people were very excitedly talking about um a lot of yeah foundational um Evan Thompson Francisco Varela ideas but also of course Andy Clark had been there twice in the um previously um so he was also quite um I guess instrumental in, in building that Cogs uh, school up. Um, so, so there was a big influence of him, and also of the people who had had influences on him. So, mm-hmm. that, so yeah, it was a very it was a very heavily embodied and an active environment to be in in the different groups. So, um, so yes, I think that's where I got a lot of um, my interest and my understanding of the sort of Thinking and spirit behind this yeah. kind of approach yeah, yeah. to to understanding the the mind and the brain,
0: yeah, it's very that 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 kind of time and era and that place in particular has came up quite a bit on this podcast, yeah, um,
1: it was very end really of of cogs as it had been cog Cog's heyday was really before when I arrived, but I just caught the tail end, which was a much more inactive pro inactive um Environment than perhaps it might have been before when it was sort of more Andy Clarkian. I think, um, although I then subsequently went to Edinburgh because I got a scholarship, so I could be a full time PhD student at Edinburgh, um, where I was um, supervised by Andy Clark. So then I was of course a lot very influenced by Andy's stuff there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Be- be- before we kind of, I'm, I'm just pull you back to that a little bit, and, like. Try and understand a little bit of the sense of the mood at that time. At Sussex. At Sussex. Was was there a lot of excitement about this new approach? Was there some real ambition to start to ground this new approach in more kind of scientific methodologies? Or at that time, was it still deeply conceptual? How was it kind of unfolding? And what was the the general spirit at the time, I guess? So I
1: guess... I will have a different perspective from people like Tom, American, Hannah and Ezekiel, because I was very much, so I was there only for a year and I was very much a first year PhD student and all of this was completely new to me. So, so for me, it was like just an introduction to these ideas. I wasn't really aware of those sort of subtleties. Um, it did seem that everyone was very excited about, about that approach it didn't seem to me at the time it didn't seem like it was a new approach it was just like a, a new to me it was new it to to them it just seemed to be how they were thinking and what how they were thinking um through a framework through which they were thinking and and making sense of things and it seemed um yeah it seemed to be the default among many um of the people there which so it took going away from there to realize that actually that it was a, it's actually quite um uh, a niche area of philosophy of cognitive science or cognitive uh, a niche approach to cognitive science it's not like a default approach um but it, yeah so so it's interesting i guess we all do that we grow up in inside sort of traditions and just assume that they're mm. the default until we right. find differently right right but.
0: so One question I have is, do you feel that the kind of ambitions of the framework at that time have came to the kinds of fruition that was expected of them? I know that's a very general question, but I wonder if anything comes to mind that sticks out.
1: Um, To be honest, I think that would have required me having a more sophisticated understanding of it at the time. Um, so I was really still working on more kind of Damasio um, ideas. It was just that, yeah, the, these ideas and this language and these people were um, were ones that I got introduced to there. But I wasn't, I didn't sort of jump into the inactive approach. In fact, I wasn't really so so much aware that there was an inactive approach at that time. Um, it was more of like a trickle effect Mm. um yeah so yeah I don't think I'm in the right position to to be able to judge that I guess what I can judge is that um the people who were very junior at the time like Marek and Hannah and Tom and Ezekiel to some extent even though he was already faculty um have uh yeah developed in ways that i I wouldn't necessarily have anticipated. i think that they i think that they've really started to push the inactive approach forward in um yeah in really interesting ways and ways that wouldn't have been obvious just going from the the key Varela and thompson um inactive foundations um so yeah, so that's quite fun to think of. Um, mm. Yeah, their their progression from then. Sure, sure. So, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, I mean, like the the. There's an impossibility of anticipating the future, right? When it's yeah. not yet the future, and if you knew what it was going to be, you'd already know what the future is. Um, so one other question I have here is, um, it's not with respect to this work in general, but you being a philosopher, I'm interested in your take on it. Um, <clears throat> I often feel and I, I certainly think it's true that there's an aesthetic draw to certain frameworks um, and that doesn't always overlap with you know the the kind of uh, comprehensibility or the perfect rationality or the extent to which the framework has developed in its sophistication or um, you know it can be certain personalities within a uh, given someone who's promoting a theory and has some some degree of charisma or whatever. And there's something about um, that that's both uh, kind of challenging to accept insofar as like, well, I was drawn to this because these people were also drawn to it. But also, um, it's something important about that, right? Like I think even it says, someone like Whitehead would say that the the style of one's reasoning or you know logic or the style of one's whatever craft whatever it may be is is kind of a uh, the highest realization of that thing right if you can express that thing in a particular style and i think that aesthetic draw to something is a reaction to a particular style of somebody's way of doing it right so the experts are already doing it in a way that you're drawn to i wonder at that time for you was that part of the attraction right so like you said maybe you didn't fully have the broad sense of everything that was included in this but there was something that was luring you towards it regardless
1: yeah I think so so even at Sussex I th- what interested me about that approach or rather you know the things that the people who were entwined within that approach were saying so because I guess that that was more how I was um, engaging with it at that time, was that people really cared about, people cared about the body, the biology. They weren't just like factoring that out. So I think that that was, that was the initial draw for me. And then the second draw was, so when I went to Edinburgh to start working with Andy Clark, the first thing he did was to give me, uh, to send me a way to read Mind and Life by Evan Thompson, which had just come out. Because that was two thousand and seven, mm. um, it was a little ambitious of him, I think, to expect me to get through that. Because uh, it, it is a Bible. It's, I mean, it's 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 a a Bible that I keep going back to. I wouldn't say that I've like you know mastered mm. that text yet. Um, but that, but engaging with that text at that um, time, I could tell. Yeah, this is the, the, the approach that Evan is taking um, is one that takes the biology seriously, but it also takes the other things that, that that are clearly interesting and important and tend to be factored out by sort of traditional analytic philosophy of mind. So experience and, mm. um, yeah, our engagement with others and the way that we engage with the world. And I think, but I think most importantly is is that it takes a more... I guess I want to say holistic approach which wants to factor um those things in and not to not to just factor things out for the, for the sake of it or for the sake of neatness. Yeah. When you, when
0: we talked about style a moment ago there's something in what you're saying that resonates with me. I think so my own draw to it was certainly along these lines and I I was sensitive to that at the time. Um which is not to speak against the kind of coherence of the project or anything like that. Um, But my own, say, uh, I guess, affect in relationship to what I was being presented with suggested a promise within an action that I didn't quite see in other places. And that promise for me was precisely, I think what I think you're getting at, right? This more holistic approach. Yes. And that doesn't, just include the body at least not for me you know the fact that we're always talking about a body in in relationship with its environment and acknowledging the situation that we find ourselves in as a planet and so on like all of that was factoring into you know how i was i guess valuing this framework um but there's a weird tension there too right so it's like the problems themselves for me at least weren't coming from uh irresolved issues within cognitive science solely, although I did acknowledge them. So there's a kind of a you know the it's a it's an interesting thing to try and conceptualize philosophically, right? To acknowledge that you have this bias that precedes a lot of actually actually your theorizing, but then to still want to do good theorizing within that. Um, you know, and I guess it's not it's not such a a wild jump in this instance, right? If you're seeing something that has this holistic approach and you value that in general, right, maybe you have some experience that leads you to value that. I've certainly had situations with health where I take a more holistic approach and has better results or whatever, or, you know, family dynamic or whatever, whatever. Um, so there might be a bias there and it's not a crazy bias, right? And then to allow that bias to inform your kind of uh, lure into this framework, I think it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something I do do think it's something we should be conscious of.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, So, yeah, I think that's why I'm quite resistant when people want to sort of talk about sort of inactivism as opposed to other um, more traditional approaches. They want you to defend, uh, yeah, defend the inactive approach. Mm. And I think um, while in some contexts, and so when we're doing research, obviously we want to say what what we're contributing that maybe other approaches don't, but you don't want to keep getting drawn back to defending an inactive Mm. approach or something. Because that's putting a higher requirement on on the inactivist than you are on um, yeah other researchers. Basically, I think if we're honest, we're 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 always drawn to like the subjects or the approaches within the subject that we have yeah that we're temperamentally suited to, mm-hmm. um, and you you shouldn't have to always be uh, defending that choice rather we can just accept that we we are temperamentally inclined towards particular ways of viewing the world Um, Mm -hmm. and then of course you have to you have to sort of hold that as it were Um, you have to be aware that that you are looking at the world through a certain um, certain framework a certain habit through certain habits of mind and that will have certain biases Mm -hmm. Um, but we're all you know, we're all mature enough to know that all of us are doing this, mm-hmm. and so, and so then having having then the space to explore through that framework. But I'm very much, yeah, I th- I think for me personally, I'm very much just temperamentally inclined towards um, the ways of doing research and the ways of understanding the world that other people who are drawn to the inactive approach um, tend. That, that I share with them so so the same kind um the same kinds of ways of thinking and other people who like I like to call inactivist activist friendly because they might not identify themselves as an as an activist but um have positions that um activists um are, are drawn to because they are sharing the same yeah the sa- at least some of the same ways of thinking about the world um i think is a good thing to 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 do that. Also, also, of course, to know that you're doing that, but but it is a good thing to do that. And uh, yeah, so I am very much temperamentally inclined. And I think also because of my background, because I grew up um, moving around the world a lot and spent a lot of my childhood in, in Hong Kong. So I think this kind of, the uh, yeah, the inactive approach has a kind of a more, yes, this more sort of holistic way of thinking that is very much shared by, by um ways of thinking that that are more sort of common in Asia, even if you're not like immersed mm-hmm. into their Asian philosophies, you, you nevertheless, yeah, it's a, it's a slightly more um, collectivist, holistic ways of thinking in general, as opposed to the sort of more individualistic um, modes that are more common in, say, the UK and Germany and America. So...
0: Yeah, uh, it's interesting that an action does make some efforts to try and help us understand that kind of framing too, like why it is that we're drawn in particular ways to particular things, right, and why it is that affect and embodiment and so on provide frames on our reasoning that, you know, in some sense are a step ahead of it a lot of the time.
1: Yes, exactly. So so yeah, we're in a good position to be aware of all of the ways in which we're doing that. Yeah.
0: I'm going to try and uh, speak on behalf of somebody I only heard on a podcast yesterday. <laughs> but he's quite interesting and maybe you know him. Um, Johannes Jaeger is his name. He's a theoretical biologist. Um, but he's an active friendly, I would say. Um, and I guess he's more of a philosopher at this point than a biologist. He was an empiricist and so on. Uh, certainly worth checking out for any anyone listening. I think anyone listening to this podcast would get a lot from him. But he talked about, so we're now we're a couple of orders away from the actual source of these ideas, but he talked about some philosopher whose name I can't remember and a book um, that was entitled Re-engineering, Reengineering Philosophy for Limited Beings.
1: Ooh. You know this book? No, I
0: don't. I don't know it either. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'm venturing into the darkness here. <clears throat> but the basic idea, I believe, of this book is um, what he calls perspectival realism. Okay. And it's precisely getting to, I think, what we were just saying, right? That it's not that a view on the world is not venturing towards something like real knowledge. It's not that if you acknowledge that you have a perspective um, or that you're limited by your perspective, that you can't access the real world as such. It's just the recognition that you are a limited being in an infinitely complex universe and anything you, you know, any abstractions you use to kind of piece that together or make sense of that are always going to be limited. And the fact that you have a very particular perspective needs to be validated in some sense, that there's some value in it. That doesn't dissolve into absolute relativism or anything like it, right? It's just saying that, um, you know, I guess it's a bit like the blind blind people on the on the elephant, right? That you are touching the same thing, but you have a kind of a, a limited frame on whatever that thing is, and you're going to be guided, as you said, by your interests and your temperaments, and that should be fine too, right? And I guess there is still the question of, well, what does synthesis on the other side of that look like, right? So, there's always people who are going to try and synthesize those kinds of perspectives. What's the limits of that? Is that possible at all? Um, where is it and where isn't it possible? And I guess there's a whole other program there, but I do think it's a good starting point or general framing.
1: It is. I think um probably this is included in that, but I think it's also important to remember and I think, yeah, the in people in the inactive approach give us this, that it's not just a limited uh it's not just limited what we can find out but it's also shaped by our particular yeah our particular embodiments and our ways of engaging um so not that yeah not not in a sort of idealist way or you know um <laughs> purely constructed out of that but but yeah our embodiments and our interactions um and our affective predispositions and so on um yeah shape which parts of that limited um, sort of subset of of the world we can engage in. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, maybe that's captured by limited, but maybe it's just an important um, addendum.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think this is a super important conversation because it's impactful in so many different places, not just to the limited sphere of cognitive science or embodied cognitive science even. Um, But we haven't actually, (laughs) we've been talking for half an hour at this point and haven't really got to who you are your work is such is so more interesting Mog is a philosopher of cognitive science i guess that's how you'd identify um,
1: i think i i stole for a while i think the way I think it was Tony Shimero Tony that describes himself as a theoretical cognitive scientist. And so I, yeah, I was copying him for a while
0: yeah. um,
1: because then, you know, the philosophers can't <laughs> say, well, you're not doing philosophy. And the cognitive scientist can, can't say, you're not doing cognitive science. So <laughs> but it's more difficult for them to say that anyway, because you can do a, yeah, so many things. But yeah, I, I do philosophy in cognitive science, perhaps, rather than, yeah, yeah. A, being a philosopher of cognitive science.
0: Yeah, philosophy is a, somehow it's 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 not such an easy one to contentedly situate yourself within. Yeah. I don't know why that is, but I have ideas, but they're probably not well-founded, so I won't do it. <laughs> so basically, so I, I wanted to maybe, you know, take, take us back to the start of your real engagement with these ideas, um, maybe back to your PhD. So I know your PhD was really on the role of the body in affective cognition or the role of affect in cognition more generally. So obviously stemming from um, maybe some of those early interactions with Damasio and so on. But can you just talk to us about the general outline of that and what you were arguing for there, maybe how you've thought about those ideas since or how they've evolved?
1: Yeah, I think so it came from a general dissatisfaction with the traditional or orthodox embodied cognitive science approach of focusing on sensory motor embodiment and morphological embodiment so um so the shape of the body and and how we use the body for action and um yeah they were not so much engaging with affect in the physiological body there were some people of course G- giovanna colombetti has has for a long time been been pushing that forward um and then as i said andy gave me evan thompson's book to read and then as a result of the project i was in i went to a lot of conferences during my during my phd and i met evan at a couple of these and um yeah he agreed for me to go over and study with him for 3 months at the University of Toronto when I was in, I think second my second year of my PhD so I went over to Toronto and I had a lot of conversations with him which were mainly um yeah trying to trying to understand what was going on because um yeah it can be quite difficult to to understand a lot of a lot of what's going on in um in respect to things like autopoiesis and autonomy and and all these words that are, are used in very different ways. Well, so autonomy, for example, is used in a very different way in inactivism mm. or by inactive people. I'm very conscious now of not saying inactivism because um, Evan has been um, saying how, how much he dislikes the ism of, of, uh, um, of inactivism and he prefers the inactive approach. And I wasn't really thinking about that before, so i was just been throwing it around. Uh, but I don't mean anything particular by the ism, uh, just the in- the inactive approach. Um, right, yeah. So, So yeah, so I was very, very much influenced by my discussions uh, um, with him and by the kind of work he does in, in Mind and Life. Um, but I didn't want to frame my PhD thesis in terms of the inactive approach, um, mainly actually because of something that Evan had told me at one of the conferences I had met him at earlier on in the PhD, warning me that, that um, perhaps doing sort of a PhD um, on inactive things at that time wasn't perhaps uh, like a wise approach career-wise um I, I took a approach that also wasn't wise <laughs> career wise in in but but a slightly different one so so what I tried to do is is to look out with the inactive approach um look out out with the works that people within the inactive approach were doing um rather looking at the psychology and the neuroscience papers to see um what they were saying about the contribution of the body to affect and cognition. And so just looking at like sort of orthodox neuroscience papers. Um, so that's, that's basically what my PhD does it. Um, there are, there's some you know introductory chapters that you just have to shove in because it's a PhD thesis. Um, but the more interesting parts of it are the, the chapters sort of three, four and five, where I'm looking actually at the connections um Yeah, between the internal physiological processes and 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 how you can't really you can't factor them out when you're when you're looking at um, consciousness, you know, the way that that we experience the world, but also cognition more generally, because of the the details um, the details of so what I call the GUI stuff, so they're like cellular signaling and, and so forth, um, you know, the modulation, neuromodulators, all 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 of all of this GUI stuff, what how it's affecting each other. So I don't just go the route of saying, you know, it's like a complex, um, it's a complex system, so you need to you need to encompass it all. I try to rather have a look at what some of the research shows. Um, sort of what what those connections are rather and um, yes what what lessons we might draw from that.
0: So I have have a question here about um, I guess it's a philosophy of science question but it's one that's pertinent to our own work here in the unit and one that I've been not thinking about deeply but it has kept cropping back up recently and what you're saying seems to suggest to me that this is something you might have thought about a little bit and I guess the question is, um maybe there's not a definitive answer here, but what I think what you're saying to me is when you look at more classically reductive approaches within the sciences, there are a lot of findings, we might say, stuff that seems to be relatively invariant any time we inquire into it, and there seems to be something there. Um and then the question is always going to be, well, what is the, say, causal relationship between this activity, if we assume it to be stable enough to call it that, and the larger whole that it's part of? Um, but there's also a question about, for me, when you're inquiring into that science, that body of work, um, which we're all too dismissive of, I think, in an action a lot of the time, um, what are the criteria by which you say okay this makes makes the cut if you will um, and I know I'm not the only one who's thinking this I've read a few papers very recent papers from this year um, who are starting to actually do this and you know part of at least what you'd suggested as your project coming here was to do some of that too with the gut brain axis and so on so do you have a, a sense of a you know desiderata or criteria or like so how does something make it past the boundary or not, or is it just well everything is a everything is if it's good science everything is available it just needs the proper framing.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, you're right. So, so potentially in respect to the gut brain axis and the microbiome, um, and I think. Perhaps more solidly in respect to the immune system. I think that there's really interesting work going on there, and of course it's all connect. Well, <laughs> I guess that's the point, right? That it's all connected. It's difficult to it's difficult to separate the immune system from what's going on with the microbiome and the gut brain axis, um, um, from you know the endocrine system, and uh, from the nervous system more generally. Um, if you're including the peripheral nervous system and um, more and more. Um, we're understanding you know also how like um other sort of what might be considered interceptive systems like the skin and signaling mm. within the skin and between between these systems yes it's really difficult to to work out what is relevant so um to what extent these systems are communicating with, with each other to what exis- extent they're communicating with each other as systems um or um or whether rather yeah sh- how how should we how should we understand them are they really separate systems that interact or rather would it be better to understand it as one sort of yeah bigger messy complex system that we just that we're just sort of separating it, separating out for a particular explanatory project so if you're focused on certain things but always being then aware that the interactions with the other systems are um playing a big role. Yeah, the, these are these are really good questions and how, how we should do that, what the mm. what the criteria should be for doing that. Um yeah, they're things that we need to work out. So I think where my approach and working with Tom is going to perhaps differ from other approaches is because I think The orthodox way um, of understanding this, the sort of received view, is that they are separate systems um, um, and that we're just now beginning to see that they might have an effect on each other. And so these are just effects and that these um, might have effects on consciousness and cognition. Um, So it's in that respect, it's a sort of top Top down view. You're in a similar way to to traditionally the cognitivists would separate the you know the mind and the body um, mm. um, as the defaults, and then see what connections there are, which orthodox embodied cognitive science does as well. So it connects back up the body, but is the you know the default was that the that the the mind and body um, were separate. This is why they talk of the extended mind, you know, because it's ex- <laughs> extending from um, from the default position. So, so the way that we approach, uh, this would rather be the default is that, um, the more holistic, um, uh, yeah, a more holistic approach. So the, the, the default is that we are this complex GUI system that has evolved. All of this GUI stuff evolved, um, with the nervous system, or rather, the nervous system, you know, evolved within the GUI stuff first, um, and then mm. they evolved side by side after that. So, so let's take, a, let's start from this bottom up perspective, where you're you're taking us, uh, taking this body first approach. This um, you're taking you as a body within which you have uh, a brain. Um, rather than a brain that has a body. So it's not to say that I think that you can't separate out those systems or that it's not useful to separate out those systems. It's just to not take as the default that those systems are there and separate, but see how looking at this sort of, looking at you more as a this gooey, bodily, evolved system um, has come a- about, do you then find that the same systems emerge, and um, do we still then come to the same conclusions about the way that they're interacting? Um, yeah. So, so I think it's, it's this body, it's this body first approach.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I like I like the general framing. I I'm so wondering within that um, part of the problem, so if you start with that as a kind of starting point um, is the separation of system and the assumption that this system has this particular responsibility and if you ignore the interactions that already prefigure any observation of a system in the first place um, you're ignoring the fact that this system changes in very many contexts or every context and actually it's Always underspecifiable, if you will, because it is precisely because it is a complex system, right? The one definition of a complex system is that you cannot predict what will happen to the system if the conditions change, and we are the kinds of the things within which the conditions are changing all the time, and certainly in our environments. That said, I mean, there's there is some relative invariance, right? But I, I'm still wondering. If we look, say, to neuroscience and say, you know, you look at work on the so-called default mode network or something, and that's kind of promoted as this particular system with this particular set of functions and so on, um, what, what do we do with the actual science that, say, supports that? Even if we don't agree with the assumptions that are projected from that, can we trust that the science itself is free of some of those assumptions? It seems not to me, right? Do we have to throw out any talk of, you know, default mode networks whatsoever? Um, or is there some value in having some, you know, approximation of systems internal to the to the dynamics of the brain and saying, well, at least it's pointing towards something and we should preserve that in some fashion, just frame it differently. You know, so when I think about a criteria for acceptance within to a more general and active framing, the question is still, well, if we're going to engage more with the so-called empirical sciences and that's part of the inactive ambition going forward, which is what some people are saying now, and which I largely agree with, at least I agree that it might be interesting and helpful. Um, Do we start all over again? (laughs) You know, do we do an, an act of neuroscience and what's different about that? Um, or do we accept the fact that there's been good work done already? And obviously we can point to say people like Walter Freeman or, or somebody or, you know, some of his progeny and say, well, they were doing things differently from the start. But I still wonder. I still, you know, I, I don't know if that's quite satisfying to me, you know.
1: Yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, so um I definitely agree with um engaging with the empirical sciences. That's basically, I guess, what I'm mainly interested in doing. Um, I think it's great to, uh, the people who are putting forward inactive and inactive friendly sort of approaches to empirical science, that's also great. But that's, I mean, yeah, that's not the majority of what's out there. So I, I definitely think I definitely think it's not only okay, but we should be engaging with (laughs) all of the good science out there. Um, But again, I guess in order to do that, you're always doing that, or in order to do it well, you're doing it by being aware of the assumptions of the researchers um, who are producing that so so you can still draw on people's papers um, who might have very, very different approach and very different outlook to you um, as long as you know what it is they're showing within what context. So, um, mm. so I think, you know, they're all doing sort of good science. They just, mm. they might be making, yeah, t- making certain assumptions and then following, um, uh, following through on those. And as long as you frame it like that, so you're very clear in what, what is being shown in what context, that seems fine to me. Mm. Um, obviously, yeah, I tend to approach things through a different framework, but I think, I think it's consistent to be able to benefit from the results that other people are making, um, that other people are producing. Um, yeah, so I don't I don't necessarily think that there needs to be an inactive science. I mean, I guess the hope is that as people can show that maybe the received views or the orthodox ways of going about things aren't capturing everything that we might want to capture, then then science sort of will evolve to beam more inactive-friendly. I guess, so I'm I'm specifically thinking more sort of like neurophysiology, so that's quite different from mm. how people might approach psychological studies, sure, maybe, sure. and neurophenomenological studies and stuff, where there might be a m- bit more of an impetus to, to make the actual experiments and studies uh, consistent with inactive ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I guess, you know, one kind of example there is there's a tendency maybe in uh, neurophysiology to overextend insights into certain assumptions about the nature of mind and so on um, whereas actually the the good neurophysiology has actually been done but then maybe I mean, uh, not to be dismissive here, but like maybe it's poor f- philosophy that's kind of laid on top of that. Yeah, and some and of we, that is You can is just, the ignore I you think, just ignore that. Just Yeah,
1: I think so. I mean, so yeah, people, people have a tendency to be sometimes a bit lazy, or they, yeah, they frame their papers in ways that are just very common in the discipline, like you know, yeah, um, like conflating mind and brain, or saying right. that the self right. is in you know, the anterior insular or whatever. Um, So I think rather than engaging with it, you know, I think it's better to (laughs) ignore it because I don't think they're very deeply committed to these things in ways that philosophers care about anyway. Um, It's just like ways of talking. Ways of talking that can be a bit dangerous because um, it can start encouraging other people to be talking in, in those ways. And then we as philosophers have to beat that out of them but um <laughs> so it'd be better if they didn't but we're not we're not going to change the way you're trying to speak so it's better to just ignore it I think and do do better ourselves or we'll try to do better ourselves I mean we also fall into um bad ways of speaking quite a lot as well and have to have to police ourselves quite a lot so
0: yeah yeah inevitably um the so there was a, also a couple of papers recently I know we're kind of deep in the inactive you know inside baseball here, but hopefully this this is going out to the people who are sympathetic to the conversation
1: inactive friendly people <laughs>
0: exactly but um on an action as a philosophy of nature and maybe having failed as a kind of new paradigm for cognitive science um and part of me likes the activism as philosophy of nature. Um, maybe for me, it, it doesn't go quite far enough as a philosophy of nature, but I do think it serves quite a good role as a kind of integrative framework. I think Seneca DeHaan's book is a good example of this where mm-hmm. she brings together, you know, various dimensions, biological, social, psychological, physiological, and does so in a quite convincing satisfying way and it serves in that domain where she's talking about an active psychiatry or psychiatry in general as a useful map of the space um but there's something slightly unsatisfying about that to a scientist i guess and there is still that question right if an action is a paradigm shift within the sciences um What does that mean for its methods and so on? Is there a coherent bunch of methods that exist there that can be formulated? And part of our ambition here in the unit is to at least think through that and what that is and what that might mean. Um, But I'm also quite sympathetic to the idea that actually um, as a kind of integrative framework uh, that's still helping produce insights and helping direct existing methods that could be in itself super productive, right, and that in itself is a kind of scientific program you're you're bringing a kind of philosophical coherence to the program or to a set of existing methods and so on that could be integrated well
1: yeah, I think that that could be the most powerful um yeah way to influence things yeah, i think I don't know if it's the best way to go forward, but i d- I definitely think that would be a that's a good way to go forward, like certainly for myself, sometimes I sort of write as an inactivist or I try and write an inactive account of something, but I think mostly it's just that those intuitions and those what what I've sort of learnt from having now sort of grown up intellectually within um <laughs> within an activism or, you know, within within an active communities maybe. Um that's just gonna shape how I approach anything that I engage with. And I think, yeah, so I think I think that would be the most powerful way for people to go forward. Yeah, it worries me a little bit sort of fighting for an inactive paradigm of something or mm. um, just because I think people are gonna spend then too much energy arguing arguing about whether it's really inactive whether arguing um a lot of people don't like to identify with things either so so you're going to alienate people that worries me as well um hmm. i think we don't want to alienate either our research or researchers from engaging with it because they think oh they have to be an activist in order to to use these methods so i think that that kind of thing worries me it would it um I think better to use use the ways that we think and the ways that we've learned from. I mean, what what's so great about the inactive approach is it's so interdisciplinary, right? We're learning from, from all these different scientists and researchers and philosophers and and um yeah, other other researchers, all who share certain Intuitions and ways of thinking, and then are 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 like doing their research and connecting other people's research. So it's like it's this really rich um, well of of uh, resources. I think that that we can draw, and so I think that that's that's the if there is an ism of an activism, that's that's the thing that it gives us this this huge well of of resources from all these different disciplines, but connected by people who who all agree that you know the mind the mind is complex, <laughs> the mind yeah. and the body uh, its complex. And yeah. we need to account for all of these connections and relations between, um, yeah, other people in the world and our biology and all of these kind of things.
0: So, so what, <laughs> so what would be your response to say a technician who comes to a lab and says, yeah, but just, you know, I'm an engineer, just show me the program and let me do the maths. Um, is your feeling at that point. So this is something, you know, that in an interdisciplinary unit comes up quite a bit where, um, somebody might not care to be on board with a whole holistic program, but still wants to do science and you're doing science, um, and you're still evolving and trying to figure out exactly what that means. But at some point you do want to be able to hand that person, the kind of uh, predictive framework in a sense that's going to say, well, we're going to test these things and inquire into whether or not these things are true because these things emerge from our theory. Um, And precisely the richness you describe often works against that, right? The fact that so many things can be drawn into it and made sense of within the larger frame I mean, to me, this is super exciting, right? And it, as I said, it works as this kind of integrative philosophy of nature and so on. But then, you know, the challenge still exists about consolidating something that looks not just to us like a science, but actually has the features of a, a rigorous scientific program. Or else we just throw that out and say, actually, this is the science of the future in some sense. And, you know, the need for integration um expands beyond any, you know, desire for the siloing that has existed up until this point. And ecology, in some sense, comes first, and we're all about interaction and relation. And however long it takes for us to get to a point where we're actually talking sense, it takes that long, but that's the project. Uh, And maybe we won't have all the kind of tech transfer from that project that might be apparent from other more reductive approaches but that's fine because we're actually aiming at something that's grander or more I don't know holistic
1: yeah I think probably I think the latter um I think that I don't really have the expertise to judge on the former um I mean I don't I don't see why in principle at the technician level you would need to be on board with like a particular approach you just need to do the things sort of you're asked but also to be aware like I guess to be aware of alternatives and why it is you're doing what you're doing I Mm. guess that um um yeah I I would assume that the sort of responsibility for choosing yeah which frameworks to use and how to use them would would lie higher in a hierarchy um so so you can still use yeah, people who aren't on board to do certain sub sub parts of it. But yeah, I think I think run, that kind of thing is beyond my expertise. I <laughs> I wouldn't know how to go about that.
0: Yeah, I guess this is a conversation that's been happening in this unit, so it's unfair of me to just throw it out there as part of a larger discourse, but um i'm certainly interested if you I think, if you have any ideas i think
1: i think no so i think my my view on it is the same as my view on um using research using orthodox research from the scientists um from from the sciences more generally yeah, like right. as long as things as long as you're aware of the assumptions that people are using uh when they're doing certain things um then then that's fine um I think that yeah this is this is I think just the main thing that we need to do with everything be aware of of those biases be aware of the frameworks that people are using and of course you you can also uh, work within a framework you don't necessarily agree with uh, um and when you know um when you're aware of that you're doing that it can be it can be uh yeah quite liberating to do that right so you're, you 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 could work within that uh framework even if you don't uh, um agree with it just to see what follows uh by doing certain things by taking certain assumptions and that's a that would be good science and you could as long as you explain what you're assuming at the beginning and, and what follows from what um yeah those are useful results to then produce as well as and yeah so i think in in a group also it's fine for um, people to be implementing things that they may not agree with but also, just to be working in a more traditional way um I think as long as because presumably some of the tasks are more mm. um more orthodox and and they're not requiring more uh, sure, yeah, sure. inactive thinking sure. um,
0: yeah, yeah, I think there's a you know there's a it'll be interesting i think for you to spend time here in our yeah. units and then us maybe to have a conversation again in six <laughs> months time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, cuz I don't know very much about sort of the implementation within the science labs of, yeah. of these kinds of things. So but this
0: this is definitely an ambition and you know thinking about how do we formalize operationalize yeah. you know, mathematize even um some of this stuff in a way that's both I guess true to the values that we hold at the kind of core the kinds of things we've already talked about yeah but are also inviting to more technical minds and satisfying in some fashion to our critics right that we can um point to the fact that things can be done in more holistic terms and still have some rigor right mm. But I, th- I do honestly think um, that that's uh, it's not just us and embodied cognitive science that are like moving into this difficult space. I think that's probably true in a lot of sciences as, you know, complexity becomes ubiquitous as we start to realize that um, <clears throat> agency is important. Right. You know, when you think about biology and it's beginning to grapple with this same question, Um, all of a sudden you introduce something like indeterminacy into material systems or physiological systems which for a long time have assumed none of that, right? They didn't have to or they avoided that conversation. So I think, you know, it's not just us grappling with this and maybe we learn together as a larger scientific community. Um, But maybe we can come back to some of your own work a bit more uh, directly. So, One thing you wrote recently, which seems very interesting, um, and maybe you can give us some of the background to this and some about where it's gone, because I know in our conversations together, uh, you've said to me a few surprising and interesting things that uh, I think our our listeners would like to hear about. Um, So you recently had this paper, Enacting Education, um, and if I'm not mistaken, this comes from well, a general interest, I guess, in pedagogy and education, but also your time in China with ideas from Chinese philosophy or just ideas from Chinese philosophy before you ever even got to China. Um, And, yeah, what you talk about as transformative learning. So maybe that's a good place to jump in. What, what, What do you mean by... What So transformative learning, if I understand correctly, is an existing kind of paradigm or pedagogy. Can you describe that to us?
1: Yeah, so it comes from Jack Mesereau from uh, adult learning um, literature. Um, so he tries to uh, characterize this sort of shift in, I guess we might say consciousness, but yeah, shift in, in the way that people... I think shift in perspective that um, occurs in some people in some pedagogical environments, so uh, he came across it during um the seventies when um, adult women were going back to university after they'd become like housewives and mothers, and um he found that um some of them were really not just sort of learning new things and becoming more aware and more broad, uh, a broader awareness. Um, So having like broadening their perspective, but really it was making them question deep habits, what he calls habits of their mind. Um, um, So what we might think of as biases nowadays, I guess we we talk, but actually I think habits of mind captures maybe a, a, a little bit better. Um, and so they be, um he he lists this whole process which i um list in the paper um of sort of becoming yeah having this sort of dissonance having a, like quite a strong effective response to that and and um so coming to terms with that by sort of identifying the the kind of habits of mind that um they're viewing the world through and realizing that they're not no longer helpful mm. um in in the context in which they are now. So then, they, well, he talks, I think, more in terms of them being accurate, so, but I, I think helpful is maybe a better way for us to think about it. Um, and so um, sort of realigning their way of thinking um, um, to be more fitting, more appropriate to the situation that they are now. Um, so, yeah, I came across... This work through Michelle Mays's paper. I forget the title of it now, but she has a paper in which she connects transformative learning theory with inactive approaches, and she proposes this idea of effective effective framing and effective reframing. So he's he's taking the she takes the um, Meserot's uh, approach of of frames of mind, and then um, yeah, sort of puts in puts in all of the inactive stuff to to make it um an effective uh, reframing which i think is a really nice idea and um is a good way of understanding it but what i wanted to do in that paper is to cash out these different ways of of changes um different ways that the perspective can be changed um and exactly what it is um i was trying to pinpoint exactly what it is to to have um a sort of a transformative learning uh, perspective change so um yeah i didn't actually think that that was necessary until i had given the talk a few places and people kept um sort of assuming what what mezero was was trying to point towards was something a little bit more trivial than what I what I thought he was actually trying to do, so so that's why I I set out the differences between like perspective changing and perspective shifting and so on, um, and trying to capture what he calls or what is often called in the literature perspective enlarging, um, yeah, which is this much deeper deeper change in perspective that that um yeah really allows us to engage with the world in a very different way um yeah so that that paper came about partly because of engaging with michelle Mays's stuff um with michelle Mays's work um but also so i had just returned actually from a postdoc in Macau, where I had been introduced to Chinese philosophy as a sort of philosophical discipline um, by going to some talks there. By um, so there's um, a professor of Chinese philosophy there, Hans Georg Müller, who's who I went to a couple of his talks, and that got me very interested in in understanding Chinese philosophy a bit more. So I was only there for four months, and when I went back to to do a postdoc there I started reading just trying to educate myself a little bit more on Chinese philosophy and I read this book called The Path by Michael Pewitt and it's very much an introductory book it's a sort of baby Chinese philosophy but it's a fantastic book it's a really really good book to to introduce you to Chinese philosophy and um, the way he talks about ritual in there really captured uh Really captured my imagination. Like so, it really there was clearly something really, really interesting about about the way, um, yeah, he talks about ritual there as not just in this kind of religious way that we think about ritual normally in the West, but rather as um, rituals that that are more sort of everyday um, ways that we engage with each other. Um, So, like, handshakes and saying thank you and the way that we engage with each other in certain hierarchical relationships um, and so on. Um, So, yes, so with that in mind, when I went to then Edinburgh and took up a new postdoc because I've been hopping around the place everywhere and I joined Duncan Pritchard's project on uh, taking philosophy into prisons, uh, we were using... A very particular method to do philosophy with the prison learners there called Copi, which is um stands for Community of Philosophical Environment, <laughs> Community of Philosophical Inquiry. Um and so I describe the method in the in the paper, um, but very, very briefly it's very well what I think ritualized, it's very um strict in rules. So it, um so rather than just sitting down for a philosophical discussion, it's much more like a game. You have everyone sitting in a circle. Um, the way we did it, we got people to to um, have um, um, choose different names so they're not identifying with themselves. And um, you contribute to the discussion by saying, um, I agree with uh, Anakin um, uh, when he says da-da-da-da, um, because da-da-da-da. And you have to use that formulation, which is actually extremely hard. Uh, it's really hard to, to do partly because you have to listen to each other really carefully because you actually have to remember what someone has said instead of just sitting there most of the time formulating your response, which is the way that we quite often engage I think that's also, I've noticed when we've done it with philosophers, they're particularly bad at this. And I think that that's probably why, because they're always sitting there just thinking of what they want to say instead of listening to each other. It's a good lesson for us, I think. Um, but also actually for, and um, for us, people who aren't philosophers, so philosophers are better at this, but people who aren't philosophers, it's actually, can be very hard to learn to do the because part, because it's, um, yeah, it turns out that not, not everyone has been sort of socialized to automatically give reasons for for ways of thinking um so that that was quite interesting to me that that when you're doing philosophy with children teenagers and and learners in prison um that because part is is really mm. yeah it, it can be quite a struggle mm. but anyway so so the the point of when when we were doing that um i saw very clearly through the sessions and so, so I wasn't leading those sessions. The the other PI on the project, Mary Boville, um so who was working with Duncan, she was she was leading these sessions. So she was doing these. I was sitting in the session as one of the participants for most of it. I led I led a couple when she wasn't there. But mostly I was sitting with another with um a student um from Edinburgh and then the rest of the um, the participants were prison learners or and prison teachers um, yeah, I saw very clearly like through throughout the sessions there was a very big change in the way that the participants acted with each other um and acted towards themselves and to the prison teachers so that this this real this real shift in I don't know really what to call it apart from this sort of transformational shift, this transformational learning shift, or a shift in attitude. But it's an uh, it, it was very much an opening up and um, yeah, almost like yeah, a freeing to engage more that that I could see was really important, but was really difficult to characterise, and I still struggle to characterise. I don't think it is um, completely characterised by transformational learning, but that's um, it's 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 one way to sort of try and uh, track the thing that I that that is of interest. Um, yeah, so so coming coming to coming to that project, having been so influenced now by Michael Buett's um account of ritual and Confucianism, um it just became yeah, very apparent to me that, that what was going on within that context was a very, very ritualized interaction where so Um, where people were doing a thing he talks about as um, as ifing so where he thinks um, what's really key to a ritual is this is uh, this as ifing this engaging in this playful way where you know that uh, you know that it's not real as it were so he compares it for example to playing hide and seek with a small child Um, the child both you and the child know that you know, you're not really hiding, and they're not really seeking, but you're both engaging in the game as if you were. Mm. So there's this, is this holding on to something very lightly? So this is this is the key it's idea. Kind of
0: a pretend play. It's almost.
1: kind of yeah. It's pre- exactly. It is a pretend play, but it's also real. So this is why he calls it as ifing. So it's not. Um, it, yeah. Um, and so he he thinks that, you know, when you also sit down to like a meal, you know, a Sunday lunch kind of meal with your family, you're also doing the same. You're leaving uh, behind the real world, as it were. You're leaving behind the arguments that you've just had with some of those family members. And you're sitting at the table as if, you know, you're a happy family. And that engaging in that way, in, the, in that particular ritual, in that way. It's transformational because it allows you to sort of re engage it sort of step out of the mm. um yeah the the habits that you were mm. engaging with um to, to yeah you you kind can now choose space, right? exactly you can now choose whether or not so and i think this is really important and and a really helpful way of seeing how we engage with others so it's the same with like a department department meeting or something you 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 leave behind all the sort of petty bickering that you have and you you sit in the department meeting as if you were all you know adult professionals who are reasonable and stuff like that and that can engage uh, then allow you to go back to your department as a slightly different person right. as, a, as right. a person better placed to actually engage as that person um you know so um so yeah, he that's he draws powerful. on he, it's really know. powerful and and he yeah he's a, it's worth reading a book and he gives examples from chinese philosophy in this but i think we can we can use that very much um especially with the inactive approach the way the so like your work on habits and stuff like this that we know that habits are very important and yeah, how to yeah. break br- this is a purpose purposeful breakdown of habits by using other habits yeah. um but to make us in the end more flexible so yeah so i i developed this a bit and i put it in context i won't go through it now the paper is um yeah quite long and quite sort of um it connects a lot of things. So it's a little bit messy because I was trying to make sense of these connections that I had made that had come from very disparate sources, but that I was seeing connections with. Um, so, yeah, th- it's, that was a first step. I'd like to pursue that a bit more, like the connections that, that I make in there t- towards education, but interaction more generally. So this is this is sort of a paper yeah. that has I've I found my way of opening up the aspects of an activism that i haven't really engaged with so much so the interactional and cultural aspects um so s- seeing seeing it through the lens of this sort of chinese philosophy approach i think is is helping me now to engage back with an activism in that in that kind of way so that that's where i'd like to go from here for a bit
0: yeah that's super exciting to me i i don't know if you know or maybe the listeners don't know but my own interest in an action has for a long time been on the intersection of an action and design. And I would see what you're saying about ritual is precisely a kind of uh, design intervention, if you will.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Um, But done so in a way where maybe it's not always intentional, right? There's some inherited awareness that this is somehow valuable and you can definitely see it even in your own family or relationship context, right? You act as if something is the case for some, some period and the answers that you needed to resolve the thing that preceded it come in the wake of that or something. Yeah. We do that a lot, I think, in relationships, right? We act as if we're not having this fight. <laughs> and actually the solution to the fight comes in when you've loosened the constraints on on what it is that you were fighting about in the first place, right? If you If you maintain the kind of, pattern that you're already stuck in the attractor just gets deeper or whatever
1: exactly yes yeah. this indirect route to it yeah that i think is super important and the inactivism or inactive thinking can give us a, a way of understanding that um
0: yeah, yeah. what's interesting about that to me is i i've always conceived of of design in, in intentional terms right it's like we set about resolving a particular issue. Uh, I'll give you, so my my take on design is that we act in the local present um, in ways we regulate ourselves in the local present, such that we open up possibilities of future regulation, right? So, like, I aim at uh, a particular goal or something and I configure my environment in such a way that at the time when I need to realize that goal, the constraints are in place such that it makes it easier or more probable that I will do that. But that's very intentional. But what you are saying about ritual as we've, and I guess it's intentional in this transformative learning um, framework too and how you're talking about it, but it's also super interesting, the fact that we've just evolved these practices spontaneously almost, or I guess there's some wisdom or knowledge there at some point, but then they just get inherited or become part of the habitus and we just know that these things are good for us somehow
1: yeah i think that's right that they're inherited yeah so um but but just because they're inherited i guess doesn't mean that they're not intentional so i mean mm. certainly like with confucian culture they're nevertheless very intentional but i think also with our own culture so when we're inculcating our children we teach them to say thank you when um when they're given things even before they want to Mm. say it you know and that's not spontaneous that's because you know we've been taught to do that but we also now as adults understand the importance of feeling gratitude but also like of engaging socially in such a way where you express that gratitude um so even if you don't feel it um and so on um right yeah that's a good example
0: i'm we're gonna have to wrap it up uh mag and uh I'm actually excited to wrap it up on this note because I think (laughs) I'm excited to be here at OIST with you and for us to be able to have these conversations. Me too. But I'm I'm definitely looking forward to bringing you back in six months' time. (laughs) And maybe we'll both have a listen to this in advance of that conversation and see what we projected for the future of that conversation. Um, But before I let you go, um, do you want to just share... If you're willing, how people can get in touch with you if they want to, um, where people can find your work. Are you on Twitter? Do you do the socials? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. <laughs> Are I you mean, out there, Mug? I am. I am out there. So, yeah, my work is available on academia and research group, uh, gate and Philpapers. papers. Um, I can be emailed, I think my email address is on those places, it's mog.stapleton.philosophy at gmail.com, uh, hopefully it gets through uh, the barrage of random emails, so I, I do attempt to reply to people, but sometimes emails get lost, and I did just join Twitter after having avoided it for okay. a really, really, really long time, for you. so, um, uh, yeah, so I am now, I am now on Twitter, but. Um, carefully. I am, yeah, trying yeah, not yeah. to get sucked in. Strictly work and strictly like fifteen minutes. A day. Yeah, so I guess you'll you'll know how best to set up my habits so that I don't. It doesn't take over my life. That that was my worry. I don't want to <laughs> get try. sucked in.
0: I could try and help. Yeah, um, I should say that uh, the next time I wasn't very fair to you, Mog. I asked you to come on this podcast this morning. <laughs> <laughs> And you were very brave to come on this afternoon. So (laughs) next time I'll give you more preparation, but I think you did a fantastic job. And I think there's something here for all the listeners. I think we covered quite a bit of territory. So uh, with that note, thanks for coming on, Mug, And, you know, we'll see you again soon.
1: Thank you for having me, Mark. Uh, (laughs) It has been fun. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.